0: Well, let's uh, just once again just come before the Lord in prayer as we come before His Word now, shall we? Father, just thank you again that you've given us your Word. The Lord, you've not left us to just struggle through life, but Lord, you've given us teaching and direction. You've given us counsel. Lord, you've given us a book of wisdom, Lord, to help us on this journey. And so this morning, Lord, just speak a little more to us, we pray. Lord, a little more to our hearts and minds. The Lord, you would help us to Understand how we should live this life that you've called us to live, how we should walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, just use this time to strengthen us, we pray. Lord, just take my words now, Lord, and just may your spirit minister to each and every one here we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've come in our study through Psalm 119 now, uh, up to verse um, 33. And we're starting to see kind of a pattern develop uh, as we go through. Um, the psalmist, again, probably David, but is, is learning uh, as this study continues. Um, and it just seems to be a kind of a, a growing in grace. Uh, and I, I love the the honesty um, that comes out through this because it just speaks to me of, of the lives that we live. You know, there's no pretense here. There's no pretending that everything is fine in my life. Thank you very much. It's a very honest, struggling You know, and we saw the last time, my soul cleaves unto the dust. You know, I'm joined to the world, to the things of this world. I don't want to be. And, you know, that kind of plea and, you know, so many of these requests. And we're going to go on in this section. And we see kind of the intensity build. And it's almost as if now the psalmist is right in the heat of the battle and you know as a christian if you live your life and you're kind of very nominal you go to the church but that's really about it you're probably not going to have challenges you're not going to have problems but the moment you start stepping out and walking in faith that's when it gets tough because of course satan's happy for you just to be a nominal christian and not really have any impact on the world around you not to really be salt and light as we've been called to be and sadly so many christians that is their experience you know, they're quite happy to uh, to worship God on Sundays. But on Mondays, well, they're back in the world. Um, and that's for many, and sadly, their life. And I think now the psalmist has got to that place of, you know, I really want to live my life for God. I don't want it to be just like other people that I see. I don't want it to be just wrapped up in the things of this world. And we've got to this place now, as I say, it's kind of really, I think, the heat of battle. Rather than finding himself, though, moving in the direction of uh, of light, moving away from darkness to light, and as we read in Acts 26.18, from the power of God, sorry, from the power of Satan unto God, as uh, Jesus said that we should be. Yeah, and I guess probably by now the psalmist had expected that to be the case. Uh, maybe that's your experience in your Christian life. You know that you've been growing and you think that surely by now, I should have started to master some of these things. I should start to to get it right. And it's as if all of a sudden the psalmist is going, hang on, hang on, this isn't what I expected. It's not as easy as I I was hoping it was going to be. And we start to hear him cry out. Just look at the things that we see as we go through the opening lines of the verses, uh, the intensity here. You know, his dependence on God has never been so great. He cries out, teach me, give me, make me, incline my heart, turn away my eyes, establish your word. Turn away my reproach. I mean, this really is a a prayer, a plea. Spurgeon just said, a sense of dependence and consciousness of extreme need pervade this section, which is all made up of prayer and plea. And it is. I mean, this isn't just a uh, uh, noting his comments. This is kind of a, we've got to a place and he's going, Lord, I really need your help. I I thought I needed your help before, but now I'm really starting to realize just how much I need you. In Ecclesiastes one fifteen, Solomon there makes a the comment and he says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. And of course in, in the world, in life, that's the way it is. You know, if you have something and it gets bent, you can never make it back straight as it was before. And yet that's really the, the plea that's coming from this broken hearted psalmist here. It's a plea to God to straighten something that is crooked, i.e. our lives. You know, and obviously if that is to happen, if it's even possible to happen, it has to be a work entirely of his grace, because as we told in Romans 7.18, that in our flesh nothing good dwells. You know, we don't have anything in us whereby we can bring about the transformation in our hearts that we seek or long for. But at the same time, that's not reason to then go, well, it's so hard, I'm just going to give up, because cast your mind back to the beginning of the psalm, how it starts, blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. and Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. Remember the double blessing? That's there. It's available. It's there for us to take. You know, that position of a, a firstborn child who would inherit double portion. And that's what's there for us. And, you know, in one sense, because we are in Christ, we've been given this inheritance, we've been promised so many great, wonderful things already, and yet there's something even more, something in this life that we can experience. Jesus said, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and that's the way we should be living our lives. It shouldn't be a constant struggle and striving every day. You know, I don't know about you. I don't know how many days you go through the week, uh, and you kind of have that. Oh, I can't keep doing this. You know, that feeling of um, just repetition and the strain of, of work or your daily routine or whatever. But for so many, that's a real experience. And the psalmist here is not letting go. It's almost like a dog with a bone. He's not going to let go of the fact that there's a blessing here. Very much like Jacob when he wrestled with God, you know, he carried on wrestling through the night, and he wouldn't let go of God in this this wrestling that we read about in Genesis because he wanted that blessing. Yeah, you know, and how how are you this morning? Do you really want the blessings that the Bible speaks of? Do you really want to live this abundant life? John ten ten. We're told there that Jesus came to give us life in abundance. It's there. God wants us to live that life. Jesus came to give us that life. And yet for so many, we, we kind of give up. We, we stop chasing after it because of the way, because of the struggle and so on. But the psalmist is saying, no, I, I'm, I'm not letting go of this. I'm going for this. And that kind of that, that longing as well, burning in his soul. There is something better than the present struggle. And of course, you know, we read in the book of Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. You know, there is something so much better awaiting us. It's a bit like an athlete in training. You know, we've just been watching, of course, the Olympics and seeing all these athletes and obviously the Paralympics still been going on and, you know, people that have trained so hard. But wouldn't it be foolish if somebody just a week or two before the Olympics gave up and said, oh, this is too hard. I'm not going to do it anymore. After all that effort, after all that training, well, for us as Christians, you know, many of us, we've already gone through a lot, but there is so much more that there's reward awaiting us. There's blessings to come in, um, two Timothy. Let's just turn to that passage. It's helpful to look at it. Uh, two Timothy chapter two, because there's a challenge here, but also a a solution to that challenge. And two Timothy chapter two just starts Paul speaking to Timothy. Um, and Paul is acting very much a fatherly role to him, instructing him and counselling him in the things of God. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others. And then he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. You know, endure hardships. You're going to face hardships. As a soldier of Christ, you're going to face troubles and trials. And, you know, any soldier in any army can't expect it just to be a breeze. Um, and verse four says, no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And it makes sense. You know, a soldier is not going to get mixed up in things of the enemy because it's going to compromise his position. And he says, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier and so on. Now again, just go back to the first verse of that, 2 Timothy 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace. And that's the key. You know, you can't be strong in your own effort. We've said already, Psalm 119 is not about making a resolution, a determined effort. This is about yielding to God. And that's where we're going very much in this um, psalm this morning as we carry on. So let's kind of jump into the text and see what what we have. So first thing is, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. I shall keep it unto the end. I mean just first of all, teach me, O oh Lord. And it's God that He's appealing to to teach him. Um, you know, if we're to learn spiritual truths, then we need to go to God to learn those things. It's God Himself who must teach us. You know, many Christians rely on their pastor, minister, vicar, whoever, to give them little spiritual tidbits, things that will maybe help them. Uh, almost like little motivational quotes. And some people just kind of rely on that. But we read in Philippians 2.12, that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, it's true, and we read, Paul says, and uh, Peter echoes and so on, that you know, there will be a stricter judgment on those who teach because of the responsibility they have in teaching. And yet at the same time, that doesn't remove the moral accountability uh, or the responsibility of the individual. That God will also look at each one of us. And when it comes to that passage that we read about in 1 Corinthians 3, when we get to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be there judged upon which church you went to. You'll be there based upon your own heart and your own walk with the Lord. And the things in your life that are you know, wood, hay and stubble, they will get burnt up. But the gold, silver, the precious stones, the things of God, the things where you've sown spiritually, spent your time reading the Bible or praying or fellowshipping or encouraging others or just growing in grace. Those are the things that will bring reward and blessing. So each one of us is responsible. Uh, and the psalmist here, making it very clear, he's not going to go to some rabbi, he's not going to go to some scribe or spiritual leader. He's going to God. He says, teach me, O Lord. Uh, it has to be the way that we go to God personally. And you know the wonderful thing about God's word, and, and even this psalm in particular, is if you personally go to God, God will speak to you. And what a privilege. What a privilege. That the God who has made everything cares enough about us to speak to us individually. I just, that just blows me away. Every time I, I study and every time something just pops out of the text at me and it's just like, wow. It's like God just spoke to me. God just gave me that verse. And you know, so many of these verses I've been going through over recent weeks and I, and I keep going back over it. As I said, I'm trying to memorize the Psalm as I'm going through it. Um and so many of these verses just keep coming back at, at the right time. You know, in a particular situation in the day or whatever else. You know, and God will speak to us through His Word. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Thy statutes. You know, we we need to be teachable. Um in First Timothy 3.2, there's a word uh, in the Greek there, uh, didacticos is the, the Greek word, or something like that. Um, and a, the, the verse says, a servant of the Lord must be apt to teach. Uh, it doesn't mean that a servant of the Lord should be able to teach others necessarily, although there is an implication of that, and many other passages that alludes to the fact that our lives should be a, a living epistle and so on. But this is saying that we should be teachable. Okay, we should be able to receive instruction i never forget, uh, the first Bible I ever read through when I was 13 was the Living Bible. And in a sense, actually, it's just a paraphrase. Uh, it's, a, it's a commentary on the Bible as much as anything. Um, but uh, the, the man that wrote it originally wrote it for his daughter, um, just to help her understand Scripture at a younger age. Um, but i never forget this verse really struck out for me from Proverbs 12, 15, and he paraphrases it as this. He says, A fool thinks he needs no advice, but a wise man listens to others. I, mean, I think that's just good anyway, isn't it? You know, that if we think we don't need advice, we don't need counsel, it's not a particularly good place to be. We always need to listen to others. Of course, we need to be discerning as to what we take on board. But again, that verse in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.2, we are to be teachable. We need to be able to receive instruction. Spurgeon says, just moving on, he says, the lesson which is desired is thoroughly practical. The holy man would not only learn the statutes, but the way of them. The daily use of them, their tenor, spirit, direction, habit and tendency. So, you know, this is, we're going to see in a moment that this carries on this theme because we've already seen back in verse 12 and 26 where the psalmist says, teach me thy statutes. He's not saying the same thing here. He's saying, teach me the way of thy statutes. It's so it's not just... I want to learn. It's not just give me head knowledge. This has to be something that's life changing. It's got to be something that's practical. And that's exactly what he's asking here. Don't just teach me things that I can store and go, yeah, I understand that, but teach me the how to. You know, loads of books are written on all sorts of subjects of how to. You know, in many ways I've said already um, that Psalm 119 is the how to of the Christian life. This is how we do it. And there's so many verses of instruction to teach us through this. So now, in fact, uh, so just to conclude, he says, uh, and I shall keep it unto the end. So if, if we're taught of God, taught of his statutes, but taught the way, the how-to of the statutes, um, it's going to be something that will, will stay with us. We're not going to forget it. Um, a man by the name of Zachary Mudge, back in 1744, made this comment. He said, unto the end. He says, quite through. The Hebrew is to the heel. That's what the Hebrew means, the, the, the idea behind the words there. He says, the force of the words seems to be quite through from head to foot. So teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it from head to foot. The whole of me is committed to this, and it's something that will, will stay with me going forward. And so the same idea carries on because then he says verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. I shall observe it with my whole heart. You know, so it's not sufficient for the the psalmist that he's just taught the way of God's statutes. He wants to understand them too. You know, for us, we should seek to understand the reason for God's statutes, to understand God's heart in a sense in giving us such a gracious law. There's nothing in God's law anywhere or in his word that's meaningless or trivial. Everything God's given is for a purpose a lot of people sometimes get quite hung up about things that are in the law and of course the law doesn't directly apply to us as Christians the law was given to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ and there's lots of laws about food, dietary laws and all sorts of other things Um, and of course we find in the book of Acts that Peter is given this instruction when he's told to to go up to, to Joppa to the men there and to present the gospel to these Gentiles that there's nothing unclean of itself uh, in that sense, now of course it's a spiritual lesson, but Peter sees this vision of the sheep coming down and so on, and the Lord says to him, go on, basically kill and eat, have what you want. And Peter kind of objects and says, but Lord, it will defile me. And, and the Lord addresses the question effectively. that you know People then still struggle with some of those ideas, but why did God give those laws? Well, because they're good practical common sense. If you look at the food that God says we're not to eat, or the Jews were not to eat... Is because the the creatures that they were told not to eat are typically scavengers, both those that live in the oceans and on the land, and and they go around just eating anything, and they typically will have far more parasites within their bodies than things that are cloven hooved and chew the cud, and so like you know sheep, cows, and so on. Um, the meat, the quality of the meat, uh, will be much better for us. And so, it's not that we can't have bacon sausages. Praise God for that. But the reality is that actually, and today it's probably slightly different because of course pigs are actually bred for food. Um, But back in the day, and at the time scripture's written, pigs were just scavengers. And to eat bacon was likely to end you with all sorts of difficult, uh, different ailments and problems. Even today, there's still questions asked about, you know, the, the different types of meat that we eat and how good certain things are for us. But the point I'm making is, everything God has given us is for a reason. God doesn't put a single law there that's just uh, because or for the sake of it. You know, everything is there for us. So understanding, of course, then, that that everything God has given. 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told there that um, every word of God is breathed. Uh, Every every word in Scripture is God-breathed. And it's to give us everything we need. I love the way that the King James translates it. It says, thoroughly furnished. I just like the picture that paints in my mind. You know, you think of a property that's thoroughly furnished. It's got everything it needs. You can just move in and start living. Well, that's the way our lives should be, that we have everything we need. We're, we're equipped. We're ready to go. So if, therefore, we're not only taught, but also granted understanding to know the why as well as the how... We're going to be taking our first steps in the walk of faith, and I think that's where we need to be getting to. That it's not just a case of the the what, hopefully we've already understood the what, but then it's the the why and now the how. And that's what we're we're starting to get into uh, as we start to grow and as the psalmist starts to develop these ideas and these themes. You know, faith again is not blind. We're to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. I mean, that's a key point, that it's not just an emotional relationship. A lot of people look at us as Christians, and I think it's just a religious thing. It's something that makes us feel better. But we're to, to love God with our mind There's an intellectual component to our faith as well. God doesn't expect us just to put our minds to one side when we become Christians, despite what the, the world may think. You know, Jesus, when he'd risen from the dead, didn't just ask the disciples to believe. He says to Thomas, handle me and see. Touch me and see. Jesus presented himself alive, we're told at the beginning of the book of Acts, by many infallible proofs. Jesus gave proof that he was alive, that he risen from the dead. So we're not just to believe, and Paul says we didn't believe cunningly devised fables. So our minds are to be involved in this as well. So again, this give me understanding. We're to understand and comprehend these things. And he says, and I shall keep thy law. And it's keeping it in terms of obedience as well as keeping it as a treasure. Holding it something that's very dear and it's very precious. You give somebody a gift and it means something. Oh, I'll keep this. I'll hold on to it. Well, that's the way we're to be. And when we understand the law of God, we want to hold on to it. It becomes so precious to us. And again, we should observe it with my whole heart. We find that expression used quite a lot. And it, it, there's a lot of, and I haven't gone into these, um, Spurgeon in uh, the Treasury of David makes a lot of the notes of the, the structure of the way this is. But if you look back in verse 2, blessed are they that keep his testimonies, and they're seeking with a whole heart. If you look at the second verse of the next group of eight, it's verse 10. So we've got Aleph, the first group, then Beth, the second group of eight verses, and the second verse of the second group, with my whole heart. Okay, So often we find these these ideas kind of repeating as we go through. And now again, give me understanding and keep that law. I shall observe it with my whole heart. And of course we, we need to be devoted, not half-hearted towards things of God. Just a couple of comments by Spurgeon. He says, give me understanding. He said, the word here used refers to mental comprehension, as we were just saying a moment ago, as distinguished from the mere direction or pointing out, I asked for in the previous verse. Here the prayer is, make me to discern, cause me to perceive, i.e. with the understanding. And he quotes there, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Will God in very deed give us understanding? This is a miracle of grace. It will, however, never be wrought upon us till we know our need of it. And we shall not even discover that need till God gives us a measure of understanding to perceive it. We are in a state of complicated ruin from which nothing but manifold grace can deliver us. Those who feel their folly are by the example of the psalmist encouraged to pray for understanding. Let each man by faith cry, give me understanding. Others have had it, why may not it come to me? It was a gift to them, will not the Lord also freely bestow it upon me? I love that. And I love those kind of ideas because you know sometimes we read these things and we kind of make it a little distant. You know, we think of you know David or whoever is writing these things, and but we can pray, Lord, I want to understand. Give me understanding. You know, in spiritual things, in in things that really matter. And you know, God is never going to turn away those kind of prayers. Verse thirty-five. We carry on. Make me to go. In the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Uh, it's almost like, I think, uh, the psalmist almost stumbles across an oasis here, uh, in the desert, you know, and he's seizing this opportunity. Uh, it, it reminded me when I was studying this of Abraham. You remember the situation where he's by the oaks of memory and these three visitors come and so on, and, um, they make this announcement that Sarah's going to have a, a baby or so. Uh, and, but then the two of them go off towards Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord is left speaking to Abraham and, and the Lord you know, speaking with, in the Trinity as it's presented there, you know, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do? And so it, it's presented that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their iniquity, and Abraham enters into this kind of questioning with God. Oh Lord, let me ask you a question: What if there's 50 righteous? Would you destroy the city? And God says, No, not for 50. So Abraham kind of goes, Okay. Well, what happens if there's 45? And God says, No, 45. And then, okay, what about 40? And we kind of go on. And you get the idea that God is being very patient with Abraham. And Abraham kind of realizes that he's kind of pushing it because he says, oh Lord, please just, just bear with you. Just, just, just ask one more. And we keep going through. You know, it's a little bit like children in the car on the journey yesterday. Are we, are we nearly there yet? And it's like, that was as we were driving out of Haven. That was Connie. And then before we'd even got to the roundabout up the top of the A3 again, are we nearly there? No, we're not nearly there yet. Okay. And a lot of the journey we had the same. So, you know, but that simplicity that children have to ask those kind of questions. Well, that's the way we should be with God. And God's given us this, this privilege of asking these questions. You know, and I think the psalmist now has got into this. He's repeating these questions. So already we've had, oh Lord, you know, teach me, Lord, give me understanding and now make me. Lord, please. And now I've got your attention. Now I, I feel I've got this privilege of talking to you. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments for therein do I delight. It's like, again, we've already talked about there's various paths that, that face us each day. But he's saying, Lord, make me, make it such that the circumstances surrounding my life dictate that this is the way I am to go. You know, in the previous verse he states that he would observe or keep God's law with his whole heart. But he acknowledges that even that has to be a work of grace. You know, though our spirit may be willing, flesh often is very weak as we know. And the psalmist I'm sure knew all too well that learning and understanding are not enough. You know, a theologian is as prone to fall as a young convert because we all struggle with sin, uh, yeah, and like a, a stubborn mule in a sense that needs to be kept on on the right path. You know, we need to be kept from wandering, and so the psalmist says, "Lord, intervene, make me to go in the path." And I think this is interesting because it's not a prayer to have our free choice removed from us. You know, I think maybe some would would look at it as if you know we're to become robots and that's not because god won't ever do that god will never ever force us to do something against our will but this is the heart of somebody that is making this conscious decision and saying lord i want you to direct me in your path make me to go in the path of thy commandments because i delight in them psalm 37 we read there delight yourself in the lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart And the psalmist clearly here has delighted himself in God. He loves God. He says, for I delight in you, I delight in your commandments. And so please, Lord, give me the right desires. It's the same idea. Put within me the desires that you want me to have. It's a little comment from Spurgeon, which I liked, He said, thou hast made me to know, now make me to go. It's one thing knowing it, now, Lord, as I kind of step out, you know, and then this is it, isn't it? Because it's not just Sunday when we're in church, it's Monday when we, we go to work. You know, it's when we're we're standing on the platform or when we're driving to to the office or when we're taking the children to school or going about our, our daily routine, going to the shops, whatever we, we find ourselves doing. You know, it's even then it's learning to walk by faith. Paul Said this, he said, To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I mean just making it very obvious, and Paul being very honest as well. You know, that is there. You know, just as we read there, you know, make me to go in the path like a mummers, for therein do I delight. This this is the one I want, but I don't have the power to do it in and of myself. So everything about this Psalm is an appeal to the grace of God. You know, we need God in a sense to um Set the course and control the rudder of our lives, and not let us turn from one side or the other there's a line from a song some years ago that I loved that it just it says, yet I know no other savior he has given me no other call, I can serve no other master you know I just that years ago spoke to me it's it 's really what peter said you to the Lord to whom shall we go you know you have the words of eternal life you know we know enough wherever we are in our walk as Christians, to know that God's way is the right way, that Jesus is the one we should follow. He's given us no other call. We haven't got any other options presented. And so the Lord is saying, even then, narrow everything down, remove every other choice, make me to go in the path of your commandments. Because Lord, I really delight in them. On to verse 36. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to covetousness. You know, I love that, again, the way it's worded, that incline my heart. You gotta bend it towards it. It's like that idea that you can act, which is crooked, be made straight. Well, Lord, my heart has been bent away from you. And one of the, the commentators, um, who was just talking about this particular verse, said, you know, our heart will be inclined one way or another. It will either be inclined towards God's testimonies, towards things of God, or it will be inclined to the things of the world. But the the point is that if it's inclined to one or the other, it will be inclined away from the opposite. So if our heart is inclined unto God's testimonies, naturally it will be inclined away from the things of the world. And that's the prayer. Now, look at the second part of the verse, and not to covetousness. Isn't covetousness the greatest sin? If we were to think about it, didn't the I want lead to the I will? I mean, think of Satan. Think of his fall. Wasn't it his desire to want this earth, to want to be like God, like Adam had been created, Adam had been created in the likeness of God? And we read in Isaiah 14 that Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like Adam was, wanted to have rule and dominion. Just as we've said many a time, that that wonderful model in a sense that we're given in the book of Esther of Haman. You know, as God's creating the earth and Satan's looking and it's just like Haman when he goes before the king and the king's saying, you know, well, I want to honor somebody. I want to publicly lift them up and exalt them. And Haman, of course, says to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? <laughs> Come on, it's, it's me. You know, and, and Satan, as God's creating this wonderful world, and we're told in Job that the, all the, the, the stars, they sang, the angels rejoiced. And it says all the angels, Satan was amongst them. He was one of those ones praising. And then God creates Adam and gives the world to Adam. You know, it, it, it was that I want that led then to the I will. You know, and in Isaiah we have those five I will statements of Satan in his rebellion. You know, and isn't it you're wanting something you don't have or can't have, the single greatest cause of spiritual failure in your life? Isn't every temptation predicated by covetousness, we would stop and think it through? You know, just go back to the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Eve's coveting a knowledge that the serpent told her she didn't yet have, coupled with the fleshly lust for a fruit that she'd been forgiven. Wasn't it that that led to the, if you will, proverbial Pandora's box that unleashed sin and all its ugliness into the world? It was a covetousness that really was the root of everything. And behind that, of course, is pride. And that's exactly what Timothy tells us was what led to Satan's sin. But it's that wanting, it's that thinking that we should have something. And that's all wrapped up. You know, covetousness and pride really are just two sides of the same coin. Because we want something and we think we deserve it. We think we've earned it. We look at somebody else who has something and we covet it. And our thoughts are, well why should they have it and I, I shouldn't have it? See, pride. Again, incline my heart. You know, it, it, it requires the strong arm of the Lord to bend us back. You know, we are so stubborn, but He is so gracious. So verse 37, we carry on, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. Quicken thou me in thy way. Jesus makes a startling comment in Mark nine forty seven, and I'm sure that his uh, listeners back in uh, Galilee at the time would have been uh, amazed, as Jesus says, "You know what? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out." And people gone, "Sorry, what did you just say? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out." And of course, Jesus wasn't condoning. Some sort of self-abuse. What he's simply saying is, get it in context. Think of the reality of the problem you face if you allow your eyes to dictate your path. I mean, he clearly said that the danger is you can end up on a path to hell. Of course, for us as Christians, that's not the issue. We've been saved. We've been guaranteed our eternity, our salvation. But, for so many in the world, it's their eyes that lead them into all sorts of problems. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1-8 says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. You know, you're never going to see enough to satisfy the flesh. Whatever it is you look at, whatever it is you, you want to see, you know, you're never going to come to a place where the flesh has had enough. It will always crave more. And it's so often the case, isn't it? that temptation enters through the windows of the soul, which is the eyes. You know, the eye is very dangerous. And you know, it's interesting because it's following on from the the previous verse. You know, it's directly connected to covetousness. Yeah, you know, we see the things we want. We're drawn away. We're enticed. James says that when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin. When it is finished, brings forth death. So again, just verse thirty-seven: Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. You know, it's that covetousness. It's those things that maybe we would look and we'd want. It's interesting, actually, the idea is here um, of vanity. Uh, The Hebrew word is very instructive. It's a word is shav, um, but it means desolating, moral ruin, deceptive. So really what the, the prayer is, turn my eyes away from beholding things that will bring desolation in my life, bring moral ruin, things that are deceptive. You know, Who of us doesn't know the danger that can be presented by the things we allow our eyes to see? And, and actually the, the real problem is not just what the eye sees, the eye is just there as, a, as a, an organ to pass information. It's what we do with that information, it's when it hits the mind. And it's when those images and things that we see that we then covet or lust after are burn into our brains and our minds and our thinking. You know, the, the danger is if we leave it unchecked, it gets burnt into our soul. And, and the danger there is that we can come to that place, as we read Paul again speaks of that, coming to a place where our conscience can become seared. So no longer do we become offended by things that really are quite abhorrent. I remember reading some years ago, just stats, and I haven't got the numbers to hand, but how Satan has manipulated and twisted the world, and even with the likes of TV. And most of us, you know, we probably watch programs that we think are totally innocent, not really a problem. And yet, it was this, this comment was talking about, by the time a child, a child is just 10 years old, because of TV, because of news, because of programs, they would have seen thousands of people shot and killed that have seen thousands of examples of immorality, all starting to impact their lives. And we're talking about things that are not on sordid programs or whatever. We're just talking about stuff that's just readily available, TV that they get to see and watch, comments and things that go on in the news or whatever else. You know, how Satan is influencing young minds and young lives. Again, Paul says this, he says that they that are Christ are crucified the flesh, with the affections and lusts. You know, that that's the way we should be. That Those passions that stir us, they should be put away. You know, we're specifically told we're to walk by faith and not by sight. There's a real contrast in God's word between the natural mind, which just looks at things and lets that direct our paths, as opposed to somebody who's following God, who doesn't go with the natural, but follows spiritual. You know Hebrews twelve two, we're familiar, I'm sure, but it says that we should be looking unto Jesus, the Author and the Finisher of our faith. As some of you may know, years ago I used to ride a motorbike, and one of the things that you kind of get taught um, as you're riding a motorbike, particularly if you're going around a bend, you don't just look at the road immediately in front of you. You look at the apex of the bend. You look as far as you can in the distance. Because if you're looking right where you are, the danger is that you're going to not calculate the bend properly. And when you're steering and everything else, particularly if you're going a little fast, which occasionally happened, you can be in all sorts of trouble. Um, I did have the opportunity a couple of times to do track days, which means you go on to racetrack with your, your bike, which is great fun, but it's really scary when you miscalculate a bend and you're heading for a gravel trap. But see, the reality is you've got to look ahead. If you look into the distance, you look at the furthest point you can see and you make that your focus, the bend's not a problem. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you you try this in a sense, but even if you're driving a car, if you're going around a bend and you look at the furthest point in that bend you can see and you make that your focus, you'll find the bend doesn't seem anywhere near as fast. If you look down, or you're looking just in front of you, the bend can seem very fast. And it's amazing how much your perception changes. Well, the same thing. We need to be looking ahead. We need to be looking to Jesus. If we do that, then our course is going to be safe and secure. But again, the idea here is this uh, quickening. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. Don't let me look at things that are going to bring this corruption in my life. Quicken me. Make me alive. Because the reality is all of those things will make us dead. They'll make us insensitive to the things of God. Of course, you know, last and not going to go into a big study on this this morning, but pornography has such an impact on people's minds, and there's all sorts of very interesting studies done, um, and the way it's, people are realising now that it, it has very, very serious impacts uh, that a lot of people just don't perceive or think of. But it does, it, 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 anything that is not wholesome, not good and godly will have a very negative impact. And so, and it will deaden us. It will deaden our senses. And this is why. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and quicken me. Make me alive in thy way. And it's again, the acknowledgement all the time here of my way and God's way. And the psalmist keeps coming back and saying, look, I want to be going in your way. Look, Notice again, just go back to verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. That's God's way. It's all about... The way, that is God's way. And all the way through this psalm so far, we've seen that. Let's go on to the next verse, verse 38. Establish, or establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Now the Hebrew word here that's translated established, um, I'm not even sure how we pronounce it, quorum or Q-U-W-M, if we were to transliterate it into English. Uh, it has an architectural connotation to it. So rather than just be drawings or plans, which an architect might use, we're now dealing with the actual building itself. So the idea of establishing. This isn't just something that's theoretical. The prayer here is make it practical. Make it something that actually changes me. So, Lord, establish. Make it something that is so solid and and real and tangible. Establish thy word unto thy servant. I don't want just head knowledge. I want this to be something that actually changes the way I live. And again, who is devoted to thy fear. Why is it that's added on to the end here? Well, I think quite simply because there's that acknowledgement in all of this that if God doesn't do this work in us, God is a just God who will bring judgment on iniquity. And there's wisdom in that comment, who is devoted to, I fear, Lord, I fear you. I fear the fact that you are a good and righteous and just God, and you will not tolerate iniquity. This world cannot carry on as it is, thinking they're getting away with it. As uh, Pastor Joe Foch, uh, Carroll Chapel, Philadelphia, often comments, people that think that they're happy in sin and they're content and they're enjoying sin, all that's happening is they're running out of room. They're just getting closer and closer to that cut-off when God will deal and act. You know, and throughout the Bible, there's many examples where God has allowed unrighteous, ungodly kings to carry on for such a time. And then, he brings judgment on them. So establish thy word to thy servant, who is devoted to thy faith, because, Lord, I realize, if I were to carry on in my own path, then I'm heading straight into your judgment. Isaiah 51.1 just says this, Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, that seek The Lord. Look unto the rock from whence you are hewn. You know, I like that. You know, the psalmist knows that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You know, although he's a bit open regarding the struggle, he's never forgotten from whence he'd been hewn. That rock from which we've been cut, as it were. Verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Now carrying on this same theme again aware that god is a good god and his judgments are right and true you know sin deserves to be punished and this turn away my reproach you know there are so many things already that have just we've alluded to that will bring reproach i mean sin itself brings reproach you know there's not one person that has ever sinned that truly is proud of what they've done people may hide it behind a facade but the reality is in our hearts We know that it's not good. And as we've said a number of times, Romans 6, it talks about, have we any, it speaks of those things of which we are now ashamed? You know, do we have any comfort in those things, any joy in those things, the things we're now ashamed of? No, we don't. So it's turning away my approach. The things that I've seen or been involved in in the past that, that I want to put away, I don't want them to be part of my life. Either before I became a Christian or things that sadly have I've experienced or allowed into my life since I've been a Christian. Lord, I want that all to be put away, and I fear it. But there's two reasons why I think that, that there's a fear attached to that. Is because we don't want to be exposed because of the reproach. I mean, we said before, but if you can imagine this morning, we put up a screen here and, and we play back details of your life, you would be ashamed. I would be ashamed. You know, and as I said before, you know the, that that would be in a company of like-minded sinners. We're all as bad as each other how would it be if that were played back before God? Well, this is why the the miracle of the the gospel is just that our sin is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And there's this this plea, turn away my approach, or take it away, because I fear it because of the, the humility, but there's a second part of that, and that is that acknowledgement that if others were to find out, what would they think of my God? What kind of impression would be created of the God that I love, the one who, as we've seen already, we are devoted to, we delight in, do we want to serve with our whole heart, just from these verses we've been looking at. The one whose testimonies we want to, to seek after. What would others think of that God if they were to see that reproach come upon us for the things we've allowed in our lives? And it's been said before that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world is it's Christians that profess to love God with their mouths and deny it with their lifestyle. I think there's something in that. So to conclude for this morning, verse 40, Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. You know, we're going through this. That previous block in Dalit, verse 25 to 32, you know, just speaking of, almost there's a... Um, acknowledgement of that dirtiness that that kind of uh, being surrounded by worldly things my soul cleaves unto the dust and so on yeah you know, verse 28 my soul melts for heaviness yeah you know, all those ideas now it's the kind of this pleading you know i really don't want that to be my life and also again as we said at the start of this morning teach me give me understanding make me to go lord do something because i need you to do a work in my life that i cannot do on my own but as we go on, just for, verse 38, there's kind of a, uh, kind of a slightly, a turn there. Establish thy word unto servants. Lord, let me, let me stand in you and let your word become real to me. Turn away from me, your approach. Don't even let it become an issue anymore. Because look, I have longed after thy precepts. I, I hope this morning you can say that, that you've longed after God's precepts. You know, the things that we find in the word of God, I hope they excite you. I hope they stir your heart. And I hope you find yourself longing after them. Just as on a hot day, you would long for a glass of cold water. Just as that kind of same knowing that it's going to satisfy and fill and quench that thirst. Well, so God's precepts do the same for us. And we should long after those things if we we're a Christian. You know, and if, if you have not got to that place, Well, then the second part of this verse, pray that. Quicken me. Lord, make me alive. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Lord, I don't want to be dead to the things of you. I don't want to be unresponsive to the things of you. So we want to long after the things of God, after his precepts, and be made alive, be made living. Again, Jesus said that he came to give us life in abundance. And we want to pray that God quicken us, make us alive in his righteousness because that's the only way we can stand, because as Isaiah tells us, our righteousness is just as filthy rags. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this journey. Thank you for the honesty, Lord, of this psalmist, that there is a struggle. And Lord, even the desire in our hearts to serve you and to seek that which is righteous and true, Lord, is not enough. Because even though we, we desire these things, Father, we find ourselves still stumbling. We find ourselves allowing things in our hearts and our minds. We allow ourselves to look at things that we should not. And so Lord, we pray this morning that you would, Lord, direct our paths as Father, we've just been praying, Lord, that you would give us understanding. That Lord, you would make us to go in the path of your commandments. Lord, please incline our hearts, bend our hearts towards you and not towards the things of the world. Lord, please turn away our eyes. Lord, if something comes upon the telly, or if we're out and we see something that is not going to be helpful, Lord, that it is deception, that would, Lord, bring moral corruption to our hearts and minds, then, Lord, turn our eyes away. Let something happen, Lord. Lord, bring some other distraction to stop us beholding vanity. Go oh, on, Lord, make your word so real to us. Not just like plans of a drawing or plans of a building, but Lord, like the real thing. Make it so tangible. Make it something that truly is our companion. And Lord, again, we pray, don't let us even come close to thinking about reproach. Turn it so far away from us. Because Lord, we can sit here this morning and knowing that if we confess our sins right now, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, right now as we sit here, we have no reproach because it's been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so Lord, as we go from here this day, Lord, we ask that you would create in us that longing for your precepts. Make us alive so that we want you and want your word more than anything. And help us, Lord, for the rest of this day and this coming week, just to, Lord, walk in your way, to walk by faith, not by sight, because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.